0: Being radically genuine is difficult, especially when one shares an experience of a traumatic event. It is powerful in your recovery and powerful to listen to. On today's podcast, we welcome country musician Jeremiah James into the studio to share the most difficult period in his life and how he has worked towards creating a life worth living.
1: Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. We are here with a very special guest today, country music artist, Jeremiah James. For those of you who don't know Jeremiah or the music industry in general, often there are hidden gems out there. Um, It's very difficult to, to break into mainstream, but there are a number of artists out there who have somewhat of a cult following where their music really speaks to them. And when they're on the road, how they play live, seems to generate a whole lot of energy. Jeremiah James is one of those guys. And uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to check out his social media, his website, and begin to just get an understanding of his background, his music, because I think it speaks to a lot of people who've had some emotional pain in their lives. And as great of an artist as Jeremiah is, he, we're, he's actually here for a, a different reason today. Uh, he has a story to tell, and it's a story of redemption. But before we get there, you know, I'd love for you to be able to talk a little bit about um, your music career currently and how people can access your music.
2: Thanks. Uh, thanks, Raj. Uh, pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me here in the studio and uh, be part of this. You can get, uh, you can get to see my... My music on YouTube, uh, and my you can get to all my social media from my website, jeremiahjames.biz. Uh, thankfully, things are starting to open up quite a bit now, so I uh, was out in Austin recently. In a couple of weeks, I go out to um, Salt Lake City for a show, but uh, here in the Northeast, where I'm based, we, we perform pretty often, so... Uh, down in Florida, Georgia, so we're all around. But uh, to listen to the the music, like uh, Doctor McPhillan said, was uh, just go to JeremiahJames.biz. You can listen to sound bites on the website, and you can go to YouTube, listen to the music there. Um, and uh, the album that I have out right now is uh, entitled Augustus, and that's the name of my uh, my oldest son, who's sixteen. And there's thirteen tracks on there. So, we'll praise.
3: include um, links to all of his. Uh all the social media and music. We'll put it in the description. So if you're listening to this right now, just
1: click on description and links to Jeremiah's music will be right there. Excellent. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people who have listened to our first five episodes are probably curious about why we're bringing a country music artist onto our podcast today. For those who have been following us, the radically genuine podcast stands for certain values and obviously, we've been talking a lot about the psychiatric drug culture, the mental health system. But underneath all of that, it was, it's about a, stories of resilience and the ability of us as human beings to be able to cope with tremendous emotional pain and even tragedy in our lives. And Jeremiah James' story is, is unfortunately one of tragedy. And he's here for for a lot of people to be able to maybe understand that going through loss and tragedy and pain doesn't necessarily mean that your life has to end at that moment. And this is an opportunity to talk about how pain can be transitioned ultimately into wisdom and creating a life worth living. I have to uh, fully disclose that Jeremiah is a close friend of mine. We were college roommates. And with the stories he's going to tell today...
2: Roommate stories?
1: No, not roommate stories. <laughs> <laughs> that'd
2: be a, that'd be another show, I think. <laughs>
1: Definitely a different show. Um, but some of the, the the loss and tragedy that we're going to talk about today, I was witness to and, uh, you know, was with him during some of those most difficult times. Um, so I kind of want to open it up, Jeremiah. If you can, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, your story, your background, and how you get to this point where you're sitting in front of us, and we're talking about music, we're going to talk about family, right. we're going to talk about resilience, strength, beliefs, and purpose. Maybe you can you know, take us back to some earlier times.
2: Sure. So uh, I grew up in a, in a great family. My parents, uh, were they provided a great um, home for myself and uh, four siblings. I was the second oldest out of five and um older sister three younger brothers and it was a small rural community a a small little farm i grew up on and uh went to a very small little high school um but as i as i grew up and uh i just i was instilled with real good family values and and i i gotta take my hat off to my my dad and my mom for instilling those things in me and and as i grew up um you know I, i learned i learned about you know, great work ethic and all the things that uh, we I think uh, hold dear in traditional American values. Um, I got married when I was 27, and um, we had uh, my first wife and I had our son Augustus, and then uh, we had our second, which was a daughter, Alexandra, and in 2008 we had uh, our third born. Um, Caleb and uh, he was born in January of 2008 and then in April he had passed and the story that kind of that I'm going to tell you is is one that kind of surrounds and starts really with with his death Um, his life and then his death and that is kind of going to kind of bring us full circle to what uh, you know what we laid out here as far as what we're going to converse about excuse me. Um, so to make, uh, to give you a glimpse of, of how that happened, he was about three months old, um, and he was at my, my ex-in-law's home. Uh, my ex-mother-in-law was watching him and she placed him on a, uh, on an adult mattress and had a pillow top and she placed him on his belly and for years and years, like in, in the medical community, I guess there was certain opinion that, you know, you put a child, a, an infant child on their back or on their belly. It all depended on, you know, if I guess what kind of mattress, but it went back and forth like like much does in the medical community as far as opinion and what you should do with your child. But um You know, on this particular day, I should back it up maybe a day or two before my, both my older, uh, children, my son, Augustus and Alexandra, they were both sick. They had a stomach virus. So, uh, on this particular day, like I said, uh, my son, Caleb was being watched by my ex mother-in-law and she put him on their bed instead of the child mattress, the child crib. And, uh, she went to look after my older daughter, Alexandra. She checked on him once or twice twice from from uh, what we were told and uh, the last time she checked on him, he was laying face down in the in the puddle of blood and he had uh, he had uh, drowned in his own vomit and blood. So as a young father at that point, you know uh, you know I was called I was actually I was working and uh, you know, you get that telephone call the telephone call that that you get isn't you know your son died it's hey there's something happened with your son you you gotta you gotta come home so uh you know my wife at the time had called and said hey something's going on you gotta gotta come home she called again when I was on my way home uh meet us at the hospital uh so we went to the hospital and uh when we got to the hospital I I met my my ex-wife at my wife at the time my ex-wife now and um the doctor told us that he was gone, and I said, "and my my ex wife fell to the ground." And uh, just give me a second. <clears throat> and I asked the doctor um, if we could see him, and he took us to to him and you know his lifeless body lay there and you know i held him and i was upset. i was angry i punched the wall the security came they were going to sedate me and it was rough to say the least and at that point i didn't have a great relationship with my ex mother-in-law it was a very difficult relationship she was a very domineering person and that uh always questioning everything i did and that didn't sit right with me and uh those that know me you know I'm pretty outspoken and I kind of do my own thing and you know I uh sometimes do the exact opposite just because someone tells me to do one thing one way so it didn't really mix even before my son had passed but um after that it really got difficult she had you know she had taken somewhat responsibility but um they come from a very spiritual background my ex-in-laws and um You know, she probably, she pretty much just put it up to God's will. And that was difficult for me to accept. Um, And as the, as the years went by, um, it was more difficult to have a relationship with my, my ex-wife at that time, because, you know, it was almost like, uh, you know he was just dead and gone like a like a family pet or farm animal or something he was he was just not remembered so it it created a lot of problems with my my ex-wife and I at the time and eventually it uh, it led to the a divorce you know and um, we did have another child and my ex-wife really wanted another child and it turns out it was a, it was a it was a blessing um, I had, uh, another little girl with my ex-wife, Adeline Hope, and she's incredible. Um, but at some point when things were really bad, I remember arguing with my ex-wife and realizing when I looked at my children that they were holding their ears, that I couldn't be a father that I, that I wanted to be if I was going to stay in that relationship. So, and I'm not here to ever promote, you know, divorce, um, it goes strongly against my family values and how I was brought up. But when I realized that I, I was doing more harm than good, I knew that we had to have some sort of, uh, separation and then eventual divorce. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened and the things that I went through.
1: Can I, can I go back? Yeah, go ahead. Um, first of all, I want to just thank you for your willingness to be able to share that story i understand it's incredibly personal incredibly painful um i think a lot of our 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 listeners out there have um have gone through something really painful some tragedy and are trying to figure out ways to cope you said in that moment when you found out that he passed there was a lot of loss of control mm-hmm. And you were even threatened to be sedated. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Can you tell us just what you were experiencing at that moment? And if we were there with you watching you, what we would
2: have seen? Well, you know, first of all, disbelief. I mean, you just, you don't believe it. You just don't believe it. Even days after, you just don't believe what you saw. But, you know, it was important for me to see my son dead, you know, because I still wouldn't have believed it. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have believed it. So, you know, anger, uh, extreme anger and uh, just confusion and, you know, not really knowing what side is up. It's not natural. It's just not natural to have your child die. And for me, what it what it haunted me for a long time, and still does, it's still something that you got to deal with every day, you know, um, is how he died. So you know we all we all can surmise you know i'd like to go this way I'd like to, i mean none of us are getting out of here in these these bodies of ours so uh we're all going to die but how you die and and for me what haunted me and and really what um, inspired me to write one of the songs on that album is called Caleb's song it's the last song on the album was that moment that he passed was extremely Painful for me to think of what he went through. And uh, to try to come to grips with that as a father when you're supposed to protect, it's difficult.
1: All four of us who are here today are fathers. And uh, we were talking before we went live on mic here that, you know, some of the worst things that could probably happen to you in life as a parent is to, to lose a child. And I think we all speak to this idea that we feel an incredible responsibility to, to try to protect them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that loss of control when you're not able to do that is so incredibly painful. And I guess one of the things that I'm interested in knowing, because I spent that I spent that night with you. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's a lot about that evening that's kind of uh, burned into my memory because at the time I was studying to be a psychologist All right. and there's nothing that prepares you in academic training to be a human and uh, to feel with somebody you care about and to feel that, that loss. But I'm just curious to know, and maybe our listeners as well um, in the short term, you know, the immediacy of that loss the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. What were the range of experiences you went through and how did you begin to try to come to grips with what just happened and st- still be a father and still be a husband?
2: Well, I can tell you that for a while I hit I hit uh, whiskey pretty hard. And that was for a good couple of years after that happened. Um, but. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of that, you know, of course the anger was still there and, and, you know, to my ex-mother-in-law's credit, she did try to talk to me and talk to my ex-wife and I and wrote letters about how it must have been, you know, divine order for this to happen, and you know, but when you lose something like that, you just don't, it just doesn't sit for you, you know, and... No, I, I know I definitely, I mean, I had to see my, my life list on there, but I definitely had, you know, I had horrible visions, you know. I had crazy dreams at night that I'd wake up, I mean, like uh, horrible dreams, like nightmares about, you know, pieces of him, like crawling across the floor, crazy stuff, you know, that had nothing to do with just, it was just horror, you know. So, I mean, getting through all that, I can only say this and and anything I say today isn't a how-to for anyone if it doesn't sit right. It's just how how I survived and how, what I did. So, it might not be right for anybody else, but I'm just anything that I say today is is just just letting you know how I got where I'm at and a lot of it is every day Putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, that's. There were days I didn't want to do anything. Years days I didn't. I had to. I, I had, uh, I, had, I had two children, left. Um. My ex-wife, uh, at the time, uh, as my wife, she was uh, obviously extremely distraught. She was in a in a bad spot. You know, she apologized so many times that he that he had passed at her mom's house and and what had happened, but, you know, she couldn't sleep, so, I mean, it went forever, she couldn't sleep, so I actually encouraged her to get on uh, some sort of medication, so she could at least sleep. It wound up being the worst thing, to be honest with you, because it, it was a struggle months and months later to get her off of it, I mean, a real struggle, to the part that I almost like had to threaten the doctor, um, but, and the reason that, I mean, it got her to sleep, which was great. She needed it. But when it was time to get off, she didn't want to get off that medication. And it was time for her to go back to work. She didn't want to go back to work. It was time for her, us to, or her and us and the family to uh, not move on and forget. It was just time to live. And uh, you know, one of the difficult things was her family was almost working against that whole thing with her. She should stay home she should do this it's not good but uh you know I chose not to I chose not to use you know any any type of medication obviously I drank but that was like not immediately that was like months and months after but right after it happened about a week or two week and a half week or two is when she started taking meds so she could sleep but you know, in all of my lack of control in the situation, one thing that I held on to as my my relationship with my son, the only thing I could control was that I felt whatever I needed to feel. You know, and, and it wasn't always great. It was horror, you know, but I just thought, and this is, like I said, only for myself, um, I just thought I would cheapen my relationship with him by... Being numb,
1: you know, so I remember the the subsequent days i mean one one night I went over and just hung at your house, and you and I just drank some Jack Daniels,
2: yeah, yeah I remember,
1: and um we talked about a lot of, of different things i mean i'm I'm sure it's a blur for you that that evening, but we we just cried together, you know, we felt the pain, even though we were drinking the jack Daniels mm-hmm. And, you know, I I thought it was necessary that we cry together, Mm -hmm. that part of the grief process is that you feel like one. the most important thing to to do immediately is not only to be around people who love you and care about you, but to feel the pain of that loss because it doesn't go away right? That, that pain will not go away. You can numb it. You can get drunk that night. You can go to, you try to sleep it off, but that pain will not go away. And it'll affect you in nightmares. It'll affect you in, in illness, body pain, and it will stop you from being able to move forward in your life until you're willing to face what has happened and some way come to grips and take steps to create a life for yourself. So I'd like to turn the conversation to that, that process. Let's just start with alcohol. Um, right. We as human beings, like, geez, we, throughout history, we look to try to change our experience. We look to try to, to numb out pain because our relationship to pain is, is one that is, you know, can be horribly overwhelming. And I can't imagine the pain that you were feeling you know at that time when did you find yourself turning
2: to alcohol and what what was it doing to you well i was kind of like you know you grow up you never think you never ever think you're going to bury a child and you just don't you know you don't and uh so when this happened like it's like okay you start questioning everything about everything you know you just go question where am i at what have i been doing what the hell is it all worth what's it worth um well i had two kids that we're with, So I had to get my ass up, you know, and uh, I sat down um, and this is how I dealt with it. I sat down at the piano. This is really, this is really where you were talking about how do you turn that into something else that you can go on with? And I know it might sound cliche, uh, musicians talking about his, you know, he, how he comes with this inspiration, but for me, it was something that I had to work through and it allowed me to work through it. That medium, it allowed me to work through it. And if if anybody ever listens to a song, it might not make sense to them. It wasn't for anyone else other than me. It really wasn't. I was working it out, and I worked it out in my head the way I can look at it and live. So, you know, in that in that poem or song or whatever you want to call it, it just it came down to me accepting that, you know, how he passed on that, um, I'll never. Be able to control and I'll never know why. I'll never know why. And as a parent that loses a son or a daughter, I could tell you that you are looking for answers. Like, why the hell would this happen? You know, and I can tell you there are no answers that we will know here. Uh, No matter where you look, who you ask, there are no answers. Why would something like that that happen to a three-month-old, you know? So... In that song, I, I kind of go through my my steps and how I looked at it. So I can't control it. I'll never control it. I don't know why. I ask why. I don't know why. I remember him. I remember these glimpses of his life, even though three months, um, and not to digress, but you know, other people that have been in my life that have, have lost their children have years and years of memories with them. I had three months, so if there's any... I guess, uh, bright side of my situation. I had three months with my son. I can't imagine having 33 years with your son and then losing your son or daughter. So I had great memories with my son, but he was still a baby. He would smile, you know? He would smile. That was our interaction. He would smile. So in the song, it talks about that. I closed my eyes and I could see him smile. I'd do the same. But at the end of this song, and kind of where I went with how I have made purpose for myself or looking, looking towards something greater in the grand scheme of things and, and knowing that I'll not understand until it's my time to pass and, and I go to be with him, then I'll, I'll understand why. And that's the only time I'll ever you know understand. Um, and that's kind of where the song goes. It goes through the pain and, and searching for answers. And then at the end of the song, it's, I'll see you again. I, I I close my eyes and I see you, but I open my eyes and I don't see you. Well, at the end of the song, I'll see you again, and I'll know why.
1: So and so initially, your 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 mother in law was returning to her faith and talking about things in in terms of kind of a divine intervention and it, and it's God's God's will. Mm-hmm. And I can understand how that would be very difficult to here in that time of loss especially when there was negligence involved Mm -hmm. but eventually you began to think about things spiritually yourself
2: yeah I I do I will never I will never concede to it was God's divine order that that happened I think that God absolutely accepted him and I I had written my my ex-mother-in-law a letter uh, probably about I don't know six years ago and I was very blunt and you know, although you know my my faith is that God accepted him a hundred percent and he's you know he's in a better place uh it didn't have to happen that way, you know. Yeah, I, I don't I think that this without getting like knee deep in, in uh religion or spirituality you know this is a uh this is a war zone where we're at here you know there's there's definitely a lot of good but there's a lot of evil that happens and it's it's a battle so i don't think i don't think it was his time i think it was a, a situation that somebody did uh, some things that were very uh very naive and she was ignorant to some things that she shouldn't have been to you know in 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 watching my son so I don't think it was divine intervention. Yeah. I returned to a spiritual place, but that spiritual place that I returned to is he accepted him a hundred percent. I don't think it was his, it wasn't his God's divine order that he passed that day, you know?
0: And I was wondering, so after everything in coping, so music helped with that. Yeah. Music
2: helped. I mean, I think, uh, you know, idle time is what the devil's play playground, right? So I was doing hundred and fifty dates a year, man. I was I was running and gunning and and when you're when you have purpose and other things in life, there's things that keep you busy. It's it's also I think it was good for my mind because, you know, like my ex wife, it took her forever to get back to work. She was just sitting at home and 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 I'm not just not I'm not saying she was just sitting at home. She was dealing trying to deal with it at home by herself with no reason to get up and get in your car, go to work and be around other people. And I think that, uh, that was very detrimental and it could have been a lot more detrimental if she would have stayed home, you know? But in contrast, I was, I didn't, I mean, I was back, I was back performing within two weeks because I couldn't, I couldn't just sit and sit on my hands. I couldn't.
0: So the way that you would view, I mean, I know when things happen to me that are not even remotely close to that. I sometimes will look at tragedy and I will look at the world around me and I will have a very different viewpoint of what I see around me. Talk. Did did you see that when you went up on stage after and, and suddenly you're seeing all of these individuals? I mean, did tell, talk a little bit about how how life changed and how.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, well, one thing that kept me somewhat grounded and anchored was I'll do anything for my kids. I had two older kids at the time. So I could tell you right now, if I didn't have any other kids, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now with you, because I probably would have burned the candle at both ends until there was nothing left. I wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have been a care in the world. And maybe that's the reason I didn't get hooked on something. You know, maybe there's a reason I didn't, you know, get on on something that was illegal as well. I don't know, but I could tell you that that made made sure that even if I was out till seven in the morning at you know ten o'clock when they had to go somewhere, I was up and my feet were one foot in front of the other, I was doing what I had to do as a dad. So
1: there's a couple things I'm paying attention to as you're talking about your story and you know how you did cope. One thing you've mentioned a couple times is this idea that life is time limited. Therefore pain is also limited. Mm-hmm. And I hear you talking about this opportunity to know more or to even see your son, you know, once life is over. Right. Can you, Tell us a little bit about those roots and how you came to that that point of acceptance and you yeah. relied on spirituality in that way.
2: I, I am, you know, I'll tell you right now, I, I don't go to church every Sunday. You know, I'm a holiday churchgoer, but I am you know I'm extremely spiritual uh, when it comes down to it. And I can tell you that one of the statements I I have kind of lived by. And I recently was, had a conversation with someone and it came out like numerous times. So I think this, really, this story that I can tell comes down to this statement that glory is in the means, not the end. And if I live my life to the fullest, if I do everything I can for my children that I have here, I'm the best husband I can be, I provide as much as possible, and I'm, and I'm a good person uh, to my neighbor Um, I can hold my head high when it's time to meet my maker and and see my son again. So when I say the glory is in the means, not the end, it's what we do every day. And, and, and and what I do every day and try to be every day that, that to me is going to give me the opportunity to, to hold my head high in front of my son again. You know, and that's really what it comes down to for me. So. If anybody could take anything from it, I mean, it's not, it is not always, it's not an easy fix, right? It's not an easy fix. It's, uh, it's struggle. Sometimes it's, it's, it's stuff that you don't want to deal with, but you can't, you can't be afraid in my perspective, you can't be afraid to face it you face it and face it. And then either learn how to deal with that every day and it, it becomes easier how to deal with it and to put your mind in the right perspective. Um, it's not, it isn't going to kill you. If you're okay with struggling, if you're okay with the struggle, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You got to be okay with the struggle. You got to be okay with things that are uncomfortable, you know?
1: And as we talked about earlier, that pain can seem overwhelming at times. You tried to strike a balance from what I'm hearing. You tried to direct your focus and attention into work. You got busy, you played a lot of shows. I did. And it seems like that was a needed respite for you as well as a a sense of purpose because you're also supporting your kids and family's real important. But then you have this balance with feeling the pain. That's right. That's a difficult balance for a lot of people. You know, your your wife probably didn't know when to get back to work. How much time she needed.
2: Yeah, she uh well, like I said before, that sense of hey, I got to get up and do something. That no matter if you're ready for it or not. That's the balance, right? If you if you just sat around and just thought about the wrong thing all day, well how are you ever going to get out of it? So for me to to, okay, I'm getting on with this. I've got things to do. That that balance that you were just talking about, I didn't have. As long as I made it to the show, or I or I made it here or there, I didn't have a I didn't have a choice, right? I didn't. Have a, once I got there, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I could sit there, I guess, and and wallow and not talk to anyone. But you know, getting up and, and moving your feet and going and being around other people kind of forces you to uh, forces you to get back to where you need to be. You know. I mean, I, and I, and I can tell you, you know, after my divorce and you know, I remarried, I got a, I've got a, I'm a blessed person. I mean, I can sit here all day and say that I'm freaking, you know, it was horrible. The struggle I went through, it was horrible, but I still consider myself a blessed person because those lessons that I learned because of Caleb um, kind of showed me what, what really life is about. And my, my wife now Lynn she's incredible. I've I, I we have the, the three older and and I have a 7-year-old um with uh my current wife and uh I I'm telling you I I'm a blessed person. I'm a blessed man, you know. And it took a lot of struggle to get there. And it did. It did.
1: Yeah, I think our listeners are going to be really interested in that struggle and how you get to the place right now, but there's more to the story. Four to five years after the loss of your son. Yeah. Tragedy struck again.
2: Yeah, my family. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, the oldest of my three younger brothers, uh, Nate, he was killed in a uh, car accident here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A, uh, a drunk driver with, uh, a loaded, uh, box truck full of furniture that weighed, uh, even over the limit, uh. Rerended him and smashed him into a uh, uh, tractor trailers in front of him, and the family my my father, my mother, and uh, my brother and sisters and nieces and nephews and my kids we were all down at uh, in Cape Hatteras and he couldn't take off at work he was a he was a uh, a uh, a dealer over here at Sands Casino at the time in Bethlehem Pennsylvania and um, he was coming home from work around eight thirty and. The traffic merged on twenty two, and the guy behind him never stopped. Seventy miles an hour smashed him into the truck in front of him. So, you know, we got a call down on vacation, and uh, just woken up by screams from my dad and my mom. I mean, just horrible, you know. And uh, that that kind of really that. As far as my family, my my mom and my dad and my siblings, I mean, it just when something like that happens, you just you never regain where you ever were at again. He was thirty four years old, thirty four years old at the time. He was a great guy. He was a great athlete here in the Lehigh Valley. Went to Allentown Central Catholic, and uh, he went to Mary Mack, played football, and his career at Kutztown University, college educated. Um, he was just a great guy, and anybody that knew him. Or you know they just loved the guy. You know he just he was so genuine and you know said what was on his mind. He was just just larger than life, big guy. You know, um, and I remember like two days after, you know my uh, my dad come to me and saying, "How do, how do I do this?" And uh, I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "How do I bury my son?" And I said, uh, you take one foot and you put it in front of the other. And like I said before, you know, I I had three three and a half months with my son, um, Caleb. He had like thirty-three years, so you know, I, I tried to be there for my dad, but there were things he went through that and him and my mom that I, you know, I don't I don't know how to deal with other than saying, Look, you know, He's looking down, and we're going to see him again. So let's make sure we do this as best we can. You know, my mom and dad, you know, they're not the same. Obviously, there's a huge hole in their heart, you know. But, uh, you know, they're doing well. They look at the positive things. We try to be as positive as we can. We have a, you know, they've got a bunch of grandkids, and and, uh, four of uh, their children are still here. And so, I mean, they... They have gone through it, but they have some really good times as well, but like I said it's uh in that kind of situation I don't care what age obviously like I said before three and a half months first thirty three years must be a lot more difficult for them they had birthdays they had everything you know you have those uh you have those memories you have those photographs you know for someone to just be gone like that in such a such a senseless way that 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 was when he was killed when my n- brother Nate was killed it's uh it's a difficult thing, you know. It's a diff- very difficult thing.
1: You said that, um, really, you're never the same, right? You, there, you're, there's a hole in your heart, and there's no way that you can let anybody know that 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 hole doesn't go
2: away, right? Like, yeah, it's 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 just something. I all I can say is. You learn to live with it. That is it. There's no day that you wake up and like, oh, everything's okay. It's never going to like, you know, we talk, Raj, you and I talk politically. We always have. We talk about culture. We talk about all kinds of things. You know, I think a lot of times people look for the fix, right? There's a fix. There's a fix, right? So there's a fix. I can tell you that there's never a day that goes by that my... Dad feels like things are fixed it's never going to be fixed. You know, I I walk around this earth and I know that when my my when my son died, I changed the world changed for me. It's never going to be you know as innocent as it was. You know, but that is something you have to come to grips with and it's easy to think that I just want to feel better. You know, I just want to feel better. Well, if you never face it you you'll never you'll never get to a point that face it genuinely you know and honestly you'll never get a point you'll never get to a point that you can live with it
1: i remember the aftermath of Caleb's funeral and i love remember the aftermath of Nate's funeral and a lot of people with the best of intentions try to make you feel better right? They're trying to, they're trying to tell you or send a message that everything's going to be okay. Right. And I think that's the human side of people who, who really care, but I wonder, and I question whether that's the right approach. Like that's not the time, like the, the time Is to grieve or to feel the pain, to hug the people that are close to you. Mm -hmm. And you had a willingness to be able to accept that, you know, to accept that pain and to accept that nothing's going to be the same, but then still find a way to create a life of value and purpose.
2: I try. I like to think of that, you know, a hundred percent. I like to think of that. I can say that there's a purpose for people to, for you to be around people when, when you have a loss like that. I mean, there's, a, that's a purpose. We're, we're human beings. We, we need the support of our family and friends. And, and sometimes even though they don't say the right thing, saying something is better than not saying anything. Um, my true friends and family, you know, they know what we went through. But if I could give any advice to anybody, if, if anyone would listen to that, it's not the, it's not the conversation. At the funeral, it's the telephone call three months later. When it's difficult, when you don't know what to say, sometimes as a supporting person in a grieving situation, it's okay not to know what to say. Just say something and and call maybe two weeks later, three weeks later. When it's uncomfortable, what do you say? You know, what do you say? Just say something. Hey, I, I'm just thinking about you. You know, and that'll help. That'll help that person uh, with the weight that they're the weight on their shoulders that they have, you know, kind of dis- disperses that weight a little bit, you know? Um, I forgot what you were asked the other part of that question. No, that, I think
3: uh, you're touching on, it's just the human connection, like just realizing that you're not alone. Right? That's right.
2: Yeah. That's right. hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky in person. I mean, I got, I've got great friends and they've done that. You know, they've done that. Raj, we had a, bunch of different conversations over the years about this and uh about what had happened and the things that have continued we share a lot with what happens in our lives and and that's what it's about that human connection that human connection and you know family's great you can't always pick your families but you can pick your friends so hopefully you're a lucky person if you got one good friend you know that uh you know that can help you get through those times you know and
0: i I feel like um this just kind of leads to the, the last podcast was about resiliency, and it seems to me that you know when you're talking about all of this and and the connections that you made, it just that just resonated with me about resiliency. like what what makes people resilient is their ability to connect, to open up, to talk about the things that are going on, the dark things that are in their heads. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I know music probably may have helped with that. But talk a little bit about that. And I think our audience, a lot of what we hear is that, well, it's not easy for me to do, right? It, I go through this and I can't do it. I just can't do it. But it seems to me the resiliency, there might be, it's, it's about connection. Am I wrong?
2: No, I tell you, uh, the first time I played that song, Caleb's song uh, at a performance, uh, well, it was very difficult to play it. Like I could hardly get through it. It was probably like a blubbering mess because the, the, the words meant so much. So when you're singing and you're you're listening and you remember these words, they were feelings. They were dark places. You know, they were very difficult times. Uh, The First time I sang it professionally in the studio for recording at the end of it, I I mean, I could I was, I was down, dude. I was not like, I was, it was rough. But, you know, when you do it as many times as I've done it, um, now it becomes uh, a song of hope, you know, and that's, if you ever get the opportunity to listen to it, it, hopefully that makes sense. It made sense to me. And that's why I wrote it. It's a song about hope and about purpose and about faith.
1: I think that's a good segue to kind of where you are now. But I do have like some more questions. I think the three of us here have not gone through that type of tragedy. No. But you fear it, right? Oh, God. Yeah. Like, yes. What, you know, our worst nightmare, and there's nothing more human than kind of getting caught up in that story, is fear of, of loss, of losing somebody who you love so deeply that you question whether you would even want to continue to live if they were not there. A child, you know, fits in that, in
2: that category. Yeah, I could tell you that. I mean, if I was diagnosed, I would definitely have PTSD hundred percent like from holding my son, seeing him and going through that. I can tell you my phone's off over there, but I can't wait till I turn it back on. Cause I fear that more now because if that's happened, Like I, I fear that my son got to his orthodontist appointment cause he's driving now. You know, I fear and, and my wife, uh, she's awesome. She knows this about me. And you know, I tell her, you know, let me know when you're back at work. Let me know. But, once something like that happens, you definitely have, like, a, you've got a different way of things. It's, it always used to be, oh, that happens to other people. Oh, it never really came close to me, losing the son or losing someone uh, close. But after that happens, you have, like, a hypersensitivity to that, you know, to that possibility. So it runs through your head. Like, it, it's almost, it could, it's obsessive. And it could be, uh, it could be anti-productive and, and cause strain in relationships, but, it's still what goes on in your head. So, you know, you just, you deal with it as best you can, you know.
1: You said something that's really important and themes that we're gonna touch on in this podcast as we move forward. You said, I have PTSD. And there's a question, you know, in in our field, whether we can call something a disorder when it's so normal. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine feeling any other way than how you feel. Yeah, I can't imagine thinking any differently than how you think given what you've been through and how can we call something you know a, a disorder right. you know when it seems like it's such a natural adaptation and i i know the counter argument here is um you know the thoughts and the feelings are, are normal um but what i'm impressed with is your way of your way of coping with that let me give some examples and we haven't talked about this but. Your son recently got his license, and he's going to a school now that's like 45 minutes to an hour away, Mm -hmm. and he's put in a position to have to travel on the same highway Mm -hmm. in which your brother died from a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that you are in no way um, over-controlling the situation and preventing
2: your son from living a free life. How are you doing it? Well, that's subjective. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you ask my son, he'd be like, oh my God. When my son leaves in the morning, he'll call me. Cause I'm most of the time I'm gone by the time he leaves in the morning doing something, but he'll call me or if I see him in the morning, he like, text me when you get there. And most of the times I call him when he's supposed to be there. Dad, I'm just pulling in. Uh, I've like been obsessive with not tailgating, all the right stuff stay off your phone don't be texting if you got to answer a call you know make sure it goes to bluetooth don't look down it's funny because he was an offender bender i told you about this didn't i tell you about this they were going real slow on 22 probably about a mile away from where my my brother had uh had got killed and uh he hit this this couple in front of him and uh there was hardly any damage to the to the uh bumper and uh he's got to pay for it now it's like a thousand dollars i paid for we didn't we didn't have to claim it they were good enough for that and uh i think i try to control everything i can control and i can't uh, rob a life from and it's it's sometimes it's difficult to uh to draw that line um you know, you want what's best for your kids at the same time you you want so desperately for them to be safe. Um, at some point, you got to, like, trust, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's it.
3: You, you used a word that I was thinking of, and it's control, right? You, right? you try and control as much as you can because, God forbid, something happens, and you didn't do all the things that were in your head, you then you know, almost hold yourself responsible for not trying to control it more.
2: Those are the things that go through my head. Well, I could tell you a good example of that is like, even with my, uh, my ex mother-in-law, like I, I'm not an easy person to, like, I'm I'm sure I'm not an easy person to be uh, an ex wife of. Like my ex wife, probably if you had her in here, she'd be like, oh my God, he's a freaking mess. He's horrible to deal with. But like, even with my ex mother-in-law, like, I have a hard time having my older three when they were younger or my older two with her because God forbid something would happen again, you know, once. Okay. Her fault. Twice. What the hell did I just do? Mm -hmm. Mm. So control, uh, it's, you know, I think it, I think it's healthy to a point and on a continuum we're all in different Places on that continuum, right, of PTSD or whatever. I think it's all natural thing, natural things. And in my situation, I'm probably more sensitive to, than other people because that lottery ticket, you know, uh, not the positive lottery lottery ticket, the negative one that happened to me. So that that has happened in my life. So I have that I have that framework in my mind that it could happen very easily.
1: There's a lot of people that I work with personally who've been through tra- tragedy or themselves have been victims of some incredible trauma. And that's exactly what they say to me is because of the, the unspeakable or the unthinkable happened to them, the fear of it happening again, or to somebody that they love controls their life. And so much about our therapy is about taking that step forward. And even with that uncertainty and even with that fear, creating a life worth living. How do you personally cope and deal with that fear and that uncertainty without it completely controlling your life and your loved ones?
2: Well, first of all, like I said before, you got to, you got to have other things that occupy your time. You know, you do, you just have to, if you don't, then you're, you're, you, you can very easily let your brain run amok. So... You know, do I worry about my son getting to school? Yeah, but I also have fifteen other things to worry about. That that in that moment, if that was the only thing I was worried about, and I was sitting at home, I'd probably be calling him like every two minutes. Where you at? So, how did I learn to cope with it? I think is you know, I've always, I've always tried to pack as much as I could can into a bag. You know, a hundred pounds of whatever, into a 50 pound bag. And my life is crazy. My wife would tell you, he just doesn't stop. And I don't, because I just don't think I have enough time to do stuff that I want to do. And I, sometimes my eyes are bigger than reality. And I think I could do this, do that, do that. And I wind up running till I'm crazy. So one of the things that I, that I think is important in my life that has allowed me to move in a positive direction is, is being passionate about things and and being involved as much as possible in the things that you just feel passionate about, you know? Um,
1: Did loss change your perspective on, on life? So more specifically, you're talking about running yourself into the ground. You're talking yeah. a lot of things you want to accomplish. Oh
2: yeah. I mean, we got a limited amount of time. So, I mean, could be over any minute. You know, I often think about that. I'm, I'm getting older, you know, I put some weight on, I probably shouldn't have put on, so my dad's worried about my heart, my you know my blood pressure and and uh you know I keep crazy hours and flying here, flying there, doing whatever I do with music and I understand that there there's a there's a possibility of running myself ragged, but i just i just have a i just have something about me that I need to keep going, you know, I don't know what it is, but i can't uh it's very hard for me to sit back like even on a Saturday or Sunday my wife will be like can't you just come sit for a little bit and I, <laughs> so I got this and this and that to do you know so I just uh that's not how I am I don't know why but it's not how I am.
3: Were there things that you were doing that you considered unhealthy that over time you've you've to terms with and, and have moved out of your life
2: as far as control or
3: not even control just you know um, performing music um. I try
2: I try to uh I don't try to drink as much I've definitely cut back maybe some of that is uh, I'm not I, I'm not as young as I used to be mm-hmm. but I also want to get up and be productive the next day so I don't uh I mean there on occasion let me tell you I do partake <laughs> uh but uh I don't make it a a normal night out for me anymore when I'm performing to to drink that much. I mean, there's a good spot to get. We all likes to relax and have a have a drink and kind of get a little a loose, and that kind of helps with entertainment. It helps with mm-hmm. performing. It helps with musicianship, and I get that. Um, I'm just not willing to be the guy anymore that uh, drinks all that. You know, I just don't do that anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Twenty 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 was a challenging year. Was um, yeah. You and I talked a lot throughout the year. We've seen some profound shifts in culture um, over the past few years. And uh, recently, you and I have had conversations about, you know, what is the purpose of our lives? What do we want to do with the rest of our life? We care about our, our kids, but we also would care about our kids' kids. And we begin to think about generations here. And I know when you go through some of the tragedy and the the pain that you've experienced, you begin to think about a lot of things differently. And one of, th- one thing that I've always a- admired about you is that you're very value driven. And a lot of people that are in my life become influenced by um, wanting to be part of the group for, mm-hmm. the, for, the, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, some of the things that people fear the most is just, being rejected. So it's very easy to kind of just follow along what other people want you to believe or what you, what you're told. And one of the purposes of starting this podcast was that I personally and professionally was tired of a lot of the messages, especially in mental health. It's this idea that pain is something to be avoided and it's a symptom of some disorder or disease it manifests itself in multi-billion dollar psychiatric drug industry, but I'm starting to see a population of people who fail to have some of the skills and abilities that you so beautifully spoke about today and don't really believe in their own ability to handle challenges. Mm -hmm. In fact, so many people are just numbing themselves out with drugs, television, pornography. Like it's just a a constant dopamine hit of trying to get through the day. And the messages that are constantly sent to us are that you're fragile. Here's a disorder. Here's an accommodation. Here's a label. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to change the messaging around that. Um, In our last podcast, we talked about our greatest generation, the world war two generation Mm -hmm. and what they had to endure. You know, we're talking about 18, 19 year old, 20 kids storming a beach.
2: Yeah. Talk about loss. I mean, I, I often think about that. I have a conversation with my dad, you know, I, I wasn't in the military, but I think about these stories and one of the songs I did was called everything. I recorded a a video out in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. And at the end of that, um, at the end of that video, we went to the VFW, and the song is "We Owe You Everything." It's to the veterans, and um, <clears throat> you know the the stories that I heard and and the and the faces that I remember. I mean, it's inconceivable what they sacrificed and what they had to live with, and come home after that. The ones that did come home, and what the, what what they see when they close their eyes. So, you know, my story might sound like it's it's a very horrible, tragic struggle. Um, and it was, I'm not saying it wasn't, but there's generations in this, in this country of, of folks that went through that times 10. Okay. So, you know, human, human beings, we're, we are resilient and, and, you know, my perspective. And like I said, I'm only speaking from my own perspective and what I had to do. Um, I didn't want to run from what I, what I needed to feel. And that was just me. I'm not saying it's the right way. I mean, we do have a perspective. I would encourage anybody to do that because that's the only way to move forward.
1: I totally agree with you. I mean, everything that I've learned as a psychologist informs me that, right? That that genetically it's built into our DNA that we're resilient. Just imagine what our ancestors had to go through in terms of loss and pain mm-hmm. and immigrants who are trying to create a better life for themselves. And you get the sense in the culture shift that, those messages of redemption, resilience, and wisdom in the face of suffering and struggle are trying to be muted in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, be dependent. Be dependent on the government. Be dependent on, uh, be de- dependent on your psychiatrist. I mean, de- be dependent on the drugs that they're giving you. And that's definitely the message. I mean, um, you know, I spoke a little bit about how, how I was raised, how I was raised, and, uh, you know, it was uh, the school hard knocks and, you know, you learned through mistake and you were held accountable and you also reap the benefits if you were successful. So it wasn't, it, it, as a father now that I look at where we're going in our culture, I need to try my hardest to create an environment of the same type for my kids so they can find the, their passions in life and they could be successful. Um, and they have their goals and it's a goal driven, a thought process really. I mean, it's a goal driven, um, way of looking at life and perspective. This is where I want to be. This is who I want to be. Um, and if we continue to go on the path we are as, as a society, as a culture in this country, um, that's going to be stifled and limited. Um, and, you know, speaking to your point about, you know, psychotropic uh, medication, uh, you can't really be that productive if you can't move past things without, uh, without medication that's going to keep you kind of in a place
1: yeah, I think your entire life. They're You know, right now, Jeremiah, they're drugging normal human processes, right? Um, there's no other way to feel than the way you felt after the losses you experienced. And you need to feel that pain in order to get to a point where you're at right now. And now you're going to your family doctor. They're the first thing they're pulling out is a a prescription. They're they're impeding your ability to get to some of the points where you are now. And I think when we talk about the next generation, both of us care deeply about that, not only because our, we're raising our own children. um, But also like personally, you know, I'm dealing with it in my office and Mm -hmm. as a center and we know that life can be very unforgiving, and you don't know about the challenges that are that life is going to bring. Mm-hmm. Um, the one area that we all have some degree of control over is how we respond to those challenges.
2: That's the only thing we have control over. That's right.
1: The messages, you know, are, are so different now
2: right. than even
1: you know thirty years ago or forty years ago when we were raised.
2: Well, that's why I think it's important, and we spoke a little bit about this, Sean. I think you and I did. Prior to the the podcast here, but you know, it's not it's not just an opinion anymore that you can keep to yourself. Like we don't want to offend people, right? We don't. Nobody wants to offend anybody. It's what we lived over the last you know ten years. Don't offend anybody. I'm sorry, I don't feel like that. uh, I'll say what I feel and I think is true. And if it offends you, that's that's your feelings. That's not my that's that's not my responsibility. And I think our culture has to and the people that think alike have to start you know, that dialogue and not be afraid to offend people at the water cooler, you know, um, at work, right. Mm -hmm. Don't, uh, don't be afraid to strike up a conversation, you know, at family gatherings, you know, family gatherings and holidays, you're supposed to stay away from what religion and politics. Mm -hmm. Well, I say bullshit to that. (laughs) I say, talk about politics and talk about religion, you know, uh, that's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down, but I, I really feel the church has kind of like stepped away from you know, its due, its responsibility and a lot of things that have, have happened recently. So I agree with that. I think
0: our, our second podcast, the number one uh, thing was the top 10 things to keep a life of misery. Number one was avoid discomfort at all costs. Right. And so when we're talking about earlier, how it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about certain things like it was uncomfortable, you know, most people say, well, how can you even talk about what you went through? But the discomfort, you have to face it, and you have to go through it, and you have to be able to talk about it. You got to take a stance, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, you know, I want to I hear your opinion on that with, with our next generation. Do you agree that, you know, as an educator myself, I always say I want our students to learn how to critically think, look at both sides, but take a strong opinion, you know, with, when they have uh, research and everything else,
2: and then stand your ground. Well, I think when it comes to education, it's not the educator's uh, responsibility to teach those teach kids those things. The educator's responsibility to teach them mathematics, literature, um, and American history, um, the facts. um, All those other things, uh, be a critical thinker. That should come from home. Value should need to come from home. I'm not... I mean, those that folks that know me know that I'm not I'm not soft-spoken when it comes to these things. I'm pretty um, ostentatious with how I react to certain things that are going on right now, and it's gotten me in some trouble.
1: You said something that was really important regarding critical thinking, and I feel like that's getting lost. Um, when you mute the conversations and you're so afraid of offending somebody, and we treat people as they're so emotionally fragile as if they couldn't even handle uh, somebody disagreeing with them or offending them, well, then we don't get the opportunity to learn from each other. And that, at least in American universities, unfortunately, is what we're starting to see mm-hmm. is that conversation, dialogue, learning from another person, challenging them, it's, it's ending. Like The ability to do that um, is not part
0: of the educational process. And it's become so politicized. That's what I meant by, by critical thought is that that ability to look at both sides right now, you're only getting one side and that's
2: what needs to stay out of education. You're only get, that's right. You only get one side. And that's why we have to like, we have to support like organizations like Turning Point USA. They, they, you know, people are going, there are people that feel are the way we do. They're going to college campuses. They're trying to talk to people and we got to support those, those uh, organizations, because at the end of the day, you know, what made this experiment in this country, you know, the United States so great is you could have different opinion and debate about different opinion. What's so scary about today is that the media and, and, you know, major corporation, they're all trying to stifle the other viewpoints that they don't want to be, uh, to be addressed, they they don't want any of those things to come out. They just want everyone to think and feel this way. And if you feel any way different than that, you're a dangerous person. I mean, it's just crazy. So we really have to support those free thinkers out there. And even if they don't, you know, my if I could say something to the people that that are that are very liberal in their thoughts or or however you want to say it, uh, you know, at least respect other opinion. And it might not be something that at the end of the day you agree with, but you have to respect that they have that opinion, you know, and you have to let them have that opinion. Um, I, uh, I like to hear what people have to say. I make my own decisions about what they say and I'll, I'll, I'll get through that process of figuring it out. I just don't want to be told one thing and, uh, or my children told one thing or one perspective. And uh, eventually if that's all you hear, well, I guess it's like brainwashing. That's what they want, Right.
1: Yeah. You speak to something that's really important. And I know that you and I believe this 100% is that everyone has the right to live their life according to their own personal values. Right. And that's something that's inherent and that's provided to us, not only through constitution, but also, um, just as being a human being afforded to us by a greater authority. Right. Right. So nobody really has that ability to come in and tell you how to live your life, as long as it doesn't harm someone else's, right? right? And that's something really important to, to live by. And as a psychologist, it's one of our ethical values that you respect the right of everybody to live the life that they choose, right? Without coercion, without control. And it feels like one of the shifts in society has been to alter that, at least in American culture. Um, there is a message that you have to follow. And because we have the ability to communicate now through so many different means with the advancement of the internet and social media, what is really concerning is alternative viewpoints are being censored if they're not aligned with the, the message. And in the mental health industry, you know the message is that there are certain disorders, and those disorders are treated with psychiatric medications, and that's valid and that's reliable. But the alternative message is what we're sharing here, is that that's not valid, that's not reliable. There's science out there that supports it. There's history in us as human beings, and the entire message, um, and that what you're sharing today, is that we can we have such unique perspectives. I need to learn from you. I learned from you today Um, because I can only understand how you live. If I know your story, if I know what you went through and that can't be done 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. that can't be done. One day I meet you. It has to be a process that I have patience for. And so when we look at your actions or behavior out of any type of context, we don't really know what function it serves or why you act that way, right, right? right? You, who you are as a man, is based on a culmination of all your experiences. From when you talked about your experience within your family and how you were raised and those personal values, but then also the tragedy that unfolded in your life and how you responded to it. And so I know when I see how you respond to your son, and what you want for him, or I see how you react in a a certain situation, I can always step back and say, that makes sense for what he's gone through. And I can respect that. If someone doesn't know you or know what you've gone through, you're vulnerable to judgment. You're vulnerable to be providing a sham diagnosis. You're vulnerable to the coercion and control of somebody who has different values than you. So when we talk about, mental health treatment in this podcast. We're also talking about freedom. We're also talking about independence, personal rights, and your ability to create a life worth living for yourself and your family.
2: Right. Yeah. That can't be summed up. I think if I'll tell you right now, what spoke to me about what you just said is there has been, there are, there have been people that have, have gotten a glimpse of something that I've done or how I've reacted that probably have a totally different idea of uh, who I am. And I'm okay with that because I don't really care too much about <laughs> what people think about me. But um, I think you're exactly right. And if you put it into the into the framework of therapy, how does that, I mean, if I went in, hey, I'm, I'm feeling this way about uh, I'm really depressed. Uh, well, we're going to start you off with this here. Let me write this down for you. You're getting 15 minutes, right? You're getting 15 minutes to find out who I am and why I acted that way. You know, rather than more of a, a holistic approach of what let's 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 give this some time, let's work this through. You know, I think there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of meat in what you just said, Reg.
1: And your story here kind of takes us through that journey and how you get to different places at different times, and then how you learn from it. And that's a that's a message within this podcast is that your pain can serve you. To create that life that you want to live. Now, ultimately you can talk to people in your life, whether that's your family or your friends or someone in your church community, or even a mental health therapist. It doesn't matter who that person is. It's your journey and you're learning to be the most effective that you can be in response to what you've been through. That's right. What you feel is not a symptom to be drugged, right? Nor is your behavior to be judged, right? You'd make that choice for you. And with the people that you care about and the people that know you, you make decisions on how you want to live.
2: The truth is a truth. And to bring it full circle, you know, at the end of my life, when I go and meet my maker and see my son, uh, I want to know that I, no matter how difficult it was to say the right thing, to say the, to say the the truth, I said it. And whatever happens, happens. You know, because this is all a little funky little stage that we dance upon at the end of it, right? So it's, uh, it's what we do here that counts. It's the glory and the means, not the end.
0: Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words... I was just thinking about you may make their day. Thank you for listening.